last week we, we saw that Paul was saying that Christianity is really about faith in Christ, not works. And he showed that through the experience of the Galatians. So he used all these questions, these rhetorical questions to say, you know this from your own experience. Uh, but then today what, what he's doing and continuing is turning then to Scripture and saying, you also know this from the Scriptures of the Old Testament. And so even as I read in a moment, you'll hear that in five verses, he quotes different places in the Old Testament four times. So he's just rooting it all in Scripture. So again, this is Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You have a pew Bible near you if you want to um, turn there or in your own Bible. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that probably most of you have, have done job interviews at various points, or maybe you are doing job interviews. And you know how they can be fairly nerve-wracking and, and sort of scary at times. Uh, but auditions are similar to that. So, you know, since I studied violin performance for my, my undergraduate, I had to audition my senior year of, of high school. And I, I wanted to go to a, a top conservatory, and so I went to this regional audition in Atlanta. And I was warming up in the practice room, and then I was ushered into where the judge was, and I started to play, and I wasn't doing very well. And, and I saw him you know, with his little books, just scribbling notes. And, and so in your head, you're thinking, oh, this is my ch chance to, to justify all of this practice that I put in, all of this, this effort. Um, and this is my chance to be accepted to this school. Now, I think that, that as well, when we think about our, our own lives, I mean, what if our life were some sort of an audition for heaven, where we're the ones who are, who are fumbling our way through the, the concerto of life, and, and God is the judge who's sitting there you know, with scribbling the notes down in his book and saying, all right, are you, are you going to be accepted? Are you not going to be accepted? Where it's going to be based on, on how well you perform of whether or not you can justify your effort and make it in. And so I, of course, wasn't good enough to get into that particular school. But as I look at my own life, am I good enough to, to be accepted into heaven? Or are we good enough to be accepted into heaven? And really, that's the, the central question that Paul is wrestling through here, is how can we be accepted by God? And, and probably that's not the, always the burning question that we come into church with. And we maybe have thoughts about it. But we come in a lot of times with other questions. I mean, if, if you're here and you, and you don't believe uh, in God, you're probably at least open in some ways that there is a God or exploring that if you're here. Or if you do believe in a God, um, then 
you know that this is an extremely important question that, that we have to settle. In some ways, that how can I be accepted by God is the question that every single world religion needs to answer, that it's the, really the central question of the human condition. How am I going to be accepted? And, and what we see here in this passage that we just read, it, there are these two antithetical ways to be accepted by God. And so we'll just look at each of those, those individually. So the first is acceptance through works, and this, the second is acceptance through faith. And again, if you've been with us, those two themes sound familiar because it's Paul's tracking this theme through the book. So really, the, the first one is acceptance through works. And, and we said like, two weeks ago that one way that you can spot if somebody's thinking in terms of acceptance through works is by asking a, a diagnostic kind of question. And it's, if you were to die and you were going to go before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And your answer would be kind of your audition, right? Uh, why should he let you in? And so it, you know, as, you, as you think about that question, as, you know, I've asked that question to, to many, many people. More often than not, the answer that I'll get is, well, I, I've been basically good. I've tried to do the right thing. I've been on, on the right track for most of my life. I'm, I'm better than most. And, and so usually that kind of answer is showing that somebody's thinking more in terms of the acceptance through works kind of a model. Um, and we, we see Paul actually giving a name to this acceptance through works in verse 10. If you look there uh, in your Bible, he says, he calls it relying on works of the law. And what relying on works of the law really means is uh, looking to the, the law, to the good deeds that we've done for our acceptance with God, for, for justification in God's sight. Now, I think that as we think about relying on works of the law, being accepted by, in God's sight through works, um, I mean, especially in Galatians, if you know Galatians, that's already kind of the boogeyman in, in Galatians, you know, that, okay, we just, we don't even want to uh, think about that. But if we really actually step back and think about it, it's a really attractive position. Uh, and it's attractive for, for a lot of reasons. In a lot of ways, I think it's the default religious posture of all of our hearts. And here, here are four reasons that I think that acceptance through works is really attractive to us. So the, the first one is that acceptance through works is attractive because it seems really fair. I mean, that if, you, if you've worked with, with children, you know that one of the first things that they learn to say is, that's not fair. And then a lot of life, maybe not in those words, that we can continue to say, that's not fair, over and over again. Where, that's not fair that they got into that college and I didn't. I worked just as hard. I'm just as smart. Or that's not fair they got the job that I didn't get. Uh, because I'm qualified, or that's not fair, I got laid off because um, I, was, I was doing my job. Um, and so when we then think of, of God, it, the idea that, well, I'll, I'll work and I'll, and I'll get something out of my effort, it seems fair, right? That if, if God doesn't accept me into heaven, well, it's kind of my own fault because I, I didn't do what was needed. If he does accept me, I've done the, the right things, and I can, I can feel good about myself. I can feel good about my effort, that, that it seems fair, equitable. And since we know that fairness is so important, surely God is fair. So then the second, though, is it's not just fair, but acceptance through works is attractive because it's the way that life seems to work. 
It's related to the fairness. But I mean, probably most of the things that you have in your life, you have because you worked for it on some level, that you made it through school because you, you studied, or you got a promotion because you were being really faithful in your job. Or you say, well, my, my kids are well-behaved because I know how to, how to parent. Or, oh, I'm ready for retirement because I planned. You know, other people didn't plan, but I, I planned. Or, well, I have strong relationships with my family because I spent time with them or I, or I in, invested in these relationships. And I even I saw a, an interesting little kind of a meme uh, that said, if you want it, work for it. It's that simple. Uh, and, I th and I think that that's true in a lot of life. So we think, well, surely that must be true in our relationship with God. Why wouldn't it be that if you want to be accepted by God, work for it? It's that simple. But then third, I think acceptance through works is attractive because it's the default view of, of world religions. That, that every world religion apart from Christianity in some form or another is teaching that the way that you're going to get to God is by what you do. And so if you were a scientist and every scientist for the most part held a certain position that you would at least take that, that seriously. All right, well, there, maybe there's something to it because it seems like it's the dominant view. And so it's easy for us to think that way as well with acceptance through works where, all right, has everyone else gotten it wrong? Because they all agree that basically life is an audition, God is the judge, and, and then we're playing the concerto of life for him to accept us. But then fourth, Acceptance through works is attractive because it appears biblical. So, and that can actually be surprising that in a lot of ways it feels very biblical. And we even see it in our, in our text. If you, if you look at verse 12, the Apostle Paul here is quoting Leviticus. He's, it's the third book of the Old Testament. And it says, the one who does them, does good works, will live by them. And so you, you notice there, there, there's a promise, that it, it's promising life, that you will live by them. And then there's also a condition, and, and the condition is, is works, that those who do the works will live by them. And God says the same thing, actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. And so, so you see it. I mean, that he's saying obedience equals blessing. Disobedience equals a curse. That it's, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And as you're, as you're reading it, what it sounds like is acceptance through works. That's totally what it sounds like. And, it, and you can even back it up more to Genesis, to the very beginning of creation. When God made Adam and Eve, he entered into what has been called the, the covenant of works with them. And, and he gave, put them in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said that, you know, in the day you eat of this, you will surely die. And so if they, if they obeyed, they would be locked into righteousness with the Lord. If they disobeyed, they would experience the curse of God that, that comes uh, into the world. And so even there, you see the same sort of acceptance through works kind of idea. So it feels in some ways that it is ingrained in us as human beings from the very beginning. So 
when, when we consider all of that, we say, okay, well, maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. So, so what, is, what is Paul um, talking about? Because we, as much as we might want to, to get ex- excited about it and we say that it, yeah, we're, it's fair, it's the way life seems to work, it's what nearly every religion teaches, it seems to, to be biblical, but then look at Paul's warning again in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So he's saying that everyone who relies on, on the law, on, on the moral law of being a good person, or on, on ceremonies uh, for acceptance with God, they are actually under a curse. And it's kind of a shocking thing for him to say. I mean, as, as we think about this, I mean, I, it's shocking to us, but I think it would have been even more shocking probably to his original audience who would say, really? So you're saying that everyone who relies on works of the law is under a curse. Isn't it fair? Isn't it biblical? Is, isn't it something that, that, that's true for, for world religions? Like, are you going against the Bible? Because I'll, I'll show you in the Old Testament where it says, do this and live. And so are you saying that that's not true? So what is your view of biblical authority, Paul? And that's why he, he begins to answer that question from Scripture itself and why he begins to quote the Old Testament more. And so he defends it by, by quoting uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26. And you see this in the second part of verse 10. He says, this is Deuteronomy Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so what that's saying, what, what Moses was saying, is that it's, it's everyone, not just someone, who does not abide by all things, not just some things, written in the book of the law, and not just for some sort of intellectual curiosity, but actually to, to do them. That what the scripture teaches, God's standard, if we're going to have life through the law and through the, the good deeds that we've done, that it's perfect, perpetual obedience. It's, it's perfect because God's standard is that we perfectly love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We perfectly love our neighbor as ourself. And it's perpetual because if we fail once, then, then it's all gone. That it has to be something that we maintain from the day of our birth to the day of our death. And even James, the brother of Jesus, says this. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law, everything, but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. And this is where then the it's not fair <laughs> side of us comes out. That, that It feels like that's not a fair standard. I mean, imagine if you had a history teacher who said, All right, in order to pass this course... You have to get 100% on every single quiz, 100% on every single test. You have to read every word of every assigned text. You have to have perfect class participation. And that's the only way that I'm going to pass you. That we would say, wait, that's, that's not fair. That's an unreasonable standard that, that you're, you're holding me to. And so then it, is God in some way unjust or unfair to, to require this perfect perpetual obedience for us and saying that if we fail, then, then his curse comes upon us. And it's definitely not unfair of God. I mean, one is that, that he, he's God and he's true and righteous. But then also I think that it, it's helpful to know what actually the curse of God is. It talks about those who rely on 
works of the law are under a curse. That the curse isn't something like from a, a Disney movie uh, that you know the princess is under a curse, or it's not something from from Harry Potter or something like that. But what what the Bible means by by curse is actually just this complete separation from God, being totally isolated from relationship with God. And then also, of course, blessing then, on the other hand, is perfect relationship with God, being in in fellowship with him as the source of all joy and life. And so when when we sin, it it severs this relationship with God. And you can think about it as a phone line, and, and I, I was um, laughing about this when, when I was preparing. I thought, well, are there any little kids here? I'll have to explain what a phone line is. You know, it's, it's like a cell phone, but you plug something into it. Um, but, but a phone line, since, since we know what that is, um, you know, connection to your phone, it can run for hundreds of miles. And as long as that line is intact, you can have the, the conversation. And, and you could cut that line in a 1,000 places, but it only takes one cut to, to sever that, that relationship, to sever that communication. And it's very similar in our, in our relationship with God, where we can, we can sin a thousand times, but we can sin once. And, and that one, it, it cuts that communication line to God and that, that relationship, which is what the curse of God is, is separated from God. And this is what, what Paul means when he quotes Deuteronomy and says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So as long as you're, as you're perfect, then relying on works of the law will work. Works work <laughs> if you're perfect. But the moment you fail, then works don't work anymore. And you, you can actually even notice Paul's, Paul's logic um, I mean, he's somebody who is incredibly educated, and so logicians or uh, philosophers who look at logic would call it a syllogism. And, and basically what he's saying is God's standard for acceptance is perfection. That's the first thing. And then we aren't perfect, which he doesn't state, but he assumes in our passage. And therefore, we cannot be accepted through works. That God's standard is perfection, we're not perfect, and therefore we can't be accepted through works. And just, he doesn't leave it then to just our logical inference, but he actually says that then directly in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And just an illustration of this, I'm sure that many of you uh, remember Matthew 19, so that the story of the rich young ruler we actually talked about this in Connect Group uh, a few weeks ago. So the, this, this young man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so he, he's beginning operating with acceptance through works. That's, that's, he's assuming that when he comes to Jesus of what good deed must I do to enter life? And Jesus, who, who does, a lot of times is very subtle in the way that he he deals with people. He doesn't immediately say, well, let me tell you about another paradigm for salvation, that the premise of your question is off. But, but he, he goes with the premise and says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So he's giving the Old Testament answer. He's giving the answer, the, the Adam and Eve answer, do this and live. You want to have life? Obey the, the law of God. Perfectly love others. Perfectly love God. And, and so the young man looks at that and he says, all of these I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? 
And so he's saying, yeah, I, that's, that's good. I have the Ten Commandments down, but I just want to make sure I have all of my boxes checked and that I actually can be accepted in God's sight. And so, so Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so really what, what's going on here is Jesus did not require everyone he met to give away all of their possessions. But he's basically starting with commandment number one and saying, all right, the Lord says, have no other gods before me. It seems like money might be an issue for you. Are you willing to give up everything, all of your possessions to come and follow me? And so by him being unwilling to do that, he's showing that far from having kept all of the commandments, he, he hadn't even gotten number one down. And, it, and, and if Jesus had wanted to, he could have kept going through the other nine. And so as we think about this for our own life, we can be a whole lot like the, the rich young ruler, where, where we can start just, we, we come in to God or come into church just assuming acceptance through works. We're saying, okay, how am I going to, what kind of good deeds can I do to, to get into heaven? And we say, well, I pray, I read my Bible, I do all these things that I'm supposed to do, I'm, I'm basically good, I'm better than others. But as we said, what Jesus is saying is that God's standard is perfect, perpetual obedience, and that, and that we, we know that we don't love others perfectly. I mean, I know that in my own heart, and I assume that you all do as well. We know that we don't perfectly love God with all that we are. And we could, Jesus could come to us and go down all of his requirements and show the ways that, that we, we, do the, we fail in, in things we do, things we don't do, things we think, things we say, just every part of who we are. And so even though some of us might think, oh, we're, we're better than others, or, or I'm doing fairly well depending on what scale we have, the scripture says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so then if we want to try to get to God through acceptance, through works, that we either have to do one of two things. So we either say God is not as holy as he actually is, and so we lie about who God is, or we end up lying about who we are and saying that we're better than we are. And neither one of those is a place that we really want to be. It's not a helpful place. Because we have already botched the audition for life. If life were a college course, we have already failed the course. If, if life is, if our communication to God is that line, the line is already severed. And so as attractive as acceptance through works may seem to us, it won't work. And that's why we're so thankful that Paul then presents another option, another way. Acceptance through faith. So look, look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And you see that, that all the things that we do, all the, the bad things, it deserves God's curse. But that Jesus perfectly obeyed in every way. And that God, he's, he's just and holy, but he's also loving. 
which is why in, in Galatians 4.4 it says that in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we can receive adoption as sons. And so if you think about it, if, if life is that, that musical audition that Jesus is the virtuoso who played it all right, and if, if life is the college course that, that he is the only one who truly passed, who truly got 100% on every t- test, on every quiz, read every letter of every assigned text. And if it's the phone line, he's the only person who had that, that perfect line of communication open to God throughout his entire life. And if we think of Adam and Eve failing to live up to God's standards, that Jesus is, is the second Adam who, who obeys God in every place that Adam failed. If we think about Israel unable to follow the law of Moses, that, is, that Jesus is the true Israel who, who perfectly follows the law in every single way. In every way that you and I fall short, Jesus obeyed. And so he's the only person in history who truly deserved the blessing of God. But then he was cursed. And that's what, what Paul says, that he became a curse. That he was condemned as a sinner. He was beaten. He was abused. He was nailed to the cross. And, and Paul quotes a passive, the passage of the Old Testament that says that, that somebody who is hanged on a tree um, is under the, the curse of God. And so just imagine if you were there at the foot of the cross as he was dying, not knowing the end of the story, that you wouldn't have said, okay, there's a man who is blessed by God, somebody who perfectly kept all the commandments of God. You would look at him and say, wow, what did he do wrong? That's a person who is cursed. That's a person who is, who is cut off from God. And this was a huge stumbling block for, for people who originally received the Christian message of saying, really, the Messiah would be cursed? That he would die? That he would bleed? How is that possible? He's supposed to be the one who's true, who has life in himself. So how could the one who has life in himself die? And I came across this this quote from a pastor who says, the fact that Jesus died hanging on a tree remained an insurmountable obstacle to faith until they saw that the curse he bore was for them. He did not die for his own sin, but he became a curse for us. And so, so he failed the audition so that we can succeed, that, that he failed the course so that we can pass it, that his line was cut so that we can have that communication line to God. But it's not then that he just takes away the curse from us, but he actually gives us infinitely more that, that he, he rescues us from the curse, but then he gives us his blessing. And this is what Paul says in verse 14, that, that Jesus became a curse so that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And so what we get is the blessing of Christ. And of course, the, the blessing isn't some kind of abstract Thing. The blessing is God himself, which is why immediately after that, he says, so that we might receive the promised spirit, that we get the blessing of God himself dwelling with us as we look forward to the day when that will be perfect and full in every single way. But then just as, as we conclude, how is it that we receive this blessing? 
If it's not through, through works, well, look at, at verse 11. Paul says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he roots this in, in the Old Testament in the, the prophet Habakkuk and says, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so the Old Testament itself has, has this present there that, that there is, there's this other way, that there is acceptance through faith. But then also, if you just look at the final two words of our text, he says that we receive the promised spirit through faith. Because it's through faith that we are united to Christ. It's through faith that our sin is, is counted to him like a poison being sucked out of a wound. It's through faith that his righteousness is counted to us like infinite wealth coming into a, a debtor's bank account. And it's through him that we have life and, and blessing. And the pastor, John Stott, says, Faith is laying hold of Jesus Christ personally. There's no merit in it. It's not another work. Its value is not in itself, but entirely in its object, Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther says, Faith apprehends nothing else but the precious jewel of Jesus Christ. Christ is the bread of life. Feed upon him. Christ was lifted up on the cross gaze at him. And so w w when we are in Christ, then we can know that our life is not this audition where God's scribbling the notes, but in Christ, that our, our life is then this performance for a loving father who, who died for us. And so, yeah, he wants us to grow. He wants us to perfect the, the art of life, but we don't grow in order to be accepted by God but, therefore, but we have been accepted through faith, through what Jesus has done, and therefore he works in us to grow. And this is the, the reality then that we see here in, in the, the Lord's Supper, that, that, that this meal displays the blessing and, and the curse, uh, that we, we see the, the curse uh, because as, as we, we look at Christ's body, it was broken. His, body, his blood was shed. And it, it, again, as we said, it wasn't because there was anything wrong with him, but it was because there's something wrong with us that, that this represents the, the curse that fell upon Jesus and not on us. But then also the, the blessing. that If you were an Old Testament believer, you would have come to worship God with, with blood sacrifice. Um, I mean, just imagine what, what, what that w would be like if, if we did that every week here. But what we can come to God with not a blood sacrifice, but we get to enjoy this, this meal. And, and, of course, throughout Scripture, a meal represents blessing. And, and I think that it represents blessing because it's a, meals are about relationship. Where when you enjoy a meal, you, you draw closer to other people. It's something that that you, you become friends if you sit down and you eat with somebody. 